Hi, welcome to Peacock Politics. Before we get going, a disclaimer of sorts. I recorded this episode in the weeks just before the COVID-19 outbreak turned into this life-altering pandemic, so that's why we haven't referenced it. Now that's done, sit back and join me in learning a little bit more about how Australian politics works in a normal world. Hopefully we get back there soon, and please do all you can to stay healthy. A Podcast One production. It seems like the best job in the world. Travel the world at no expense to you, get wined and dined by people with global influence in wonderful places and collect an astronomical amount of frequent flyer points. The role of foreign affairs in Australian politics seems like a breeze. I'm Anna Peacock, and on Peacock Politics, yeah, that intro was a little flippant, actually a lot flippant. But what is the role of foreign affairs in Australian politics? Well, let's find out. My guest is former Foreign Affairs Minister Bob Carr. He spent 18 months in the role and remains an expert in the world of diplomatic relations. Bob, great to have you with us. Adam, great to be with you. How outward-looking is Australian politics? Are we more concerned with what's going on at home or how we're perceived abroad? It's interesting. when When I went to Parliament went into federal parliament as, as foreign minister, I was struck very favourably by the number of members of parliament who had a keen interest in other countries. So it was possible to have a discussion with a handful who, who were passionate about Myanmar and its transition from democracy, and they were invested with very high hopes of Aung San Suu Kyi at the time. Um, and I thought that was a, a good thing, that there were friends of Timor-Leste, to be found in the parliament. And even when I had to entertain the uh, the visiting foreign minister of Bulgaria, there were three or four members of parliament who had some links with the country yeah. who we were able to gather for the formal, small formal lunch at Parliament House. But I am worried by the fact that in the media, I'm thinking of the newspapers, there's less space given to international relations, especially in the Pacific and Southeast Asia than they would have been 30 or 40 years ago. Mm. There's no consistent coverage of Indonesia, for example. It's interesting given where we are, the proximity of where we are, because Australians have this interesting way of life. We're known as very adventurous. We're known, especially in our younger years, of wanting to get overseas and have the gap year and, and travel and see things. But the flip side is we are very worried about what's going on in our backyard. We are interested on how much we're being taxed, and that's always going to be. So that balance, do you notice that as a politician, that, yeah, we're adventurous in a way, but quite inward-looking in another way? Yeah, and in that respect, we're, we're the same as, I think, any people. You think of Britain in this era of Brexit, the British people, or a, majority, a large part of the British population, were sick of engagement with Europe. And they were saying, we're concerned about overcrowding. We think it's due to uh, too ambitious immigration levels from Europe and that was very much a, a little Britain response or an English nationalist response. And you think of the American people, the election of Trump, um, they don't spend too much time worrying about America's place in the world. They're worried about stock exchange, mm. um, employment growth and the rest. So we're not, we're, Australia, you could probably argue that Australia is more internationalist than many other countries. So on the global stage, what kind of player are we? Do people, if 
from other countries, from other nations, important people see us as important? The short answer is no. No, they don't. That's a shame. Yeah, we... I think, I think when we go to Washington or go to Beijing, Tokyo, uh, Jakarta, Australia is taken seriously. But the, the world is a pretty crowded place. There are 195, 193, 195 nation states. What makes Australia stand out? Why would we get attention in the foreign ministry in Paris hmm. more than Mexico or Vietnam? I think if we put it that way we're reminded that we're one of a band of what we might describe as middle powers elbowing others to get the attention we think we deserve. But there will be countries to whom, a small number of countries to whom we are important, and I, I mentioned those. Being a politician in Australia and getting elected, it's important to appeal to the people. So in the role of foreign affairs, how does that appeal to the people in the sense that you're off over there forging ties with other nations to help trade, which down the line will help the people that voted for you back here? Am I looking at it too simplistically? No, 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 no trade's a big part of it. And uh, having a good a good corporate image for Australia, you think, helps you win investment, mm. sell Australia as a good place to invest. I did a lot of that as Premier of New South Wales, promoting Australia to the world, especially in the context of the Olympics. I think the Australian people would respond if they saw you stuff up a key relationship through inept diplomacy, and they'd want you to to set it right pretty quickly. Mm. They'd punish you if you called a leader of another country a boofhead. Has that happened? No, uh, no, but... Um, <laughs> I know you wouldn't have done anything like I, that. I, I, I can think of some examples that have sailed pretty close, but I won't, I won't repeat them. <laughs> um, it's got to be a flawless performance by a foreign minister, and you've got to get the script right. Mm. The real challenge is to avoid that blunder that is going to distract people and have people at home think, you know, we're really paying our foreign minister to be, to be smooth-talking and diplomatic in all circumstances and straddle competing interests. And that's the trick. That's the art to it all. And, and you're a very worldly type. So when you go, for instance, get on the plane as a foreign affairs minister and you go and meet, all of a sudden, the leader of Moldova, do you get a backgrounder? Do you get a this person got elected by doing this. Yeah, very much so, and it's a very good standard. Uh, there's some very good writing in the diplomatic cables and the briefing notes that come out of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So you don't say the wrong thing. Yeah, but you can't help it because you, you're forced to improvise. I remember, remember once I had the Foreign Minister of uh, Belarus, and the, com the conversation was a bit difficult because we didn't have a, an agenda and we were trying to talk about how we might build a relationship. And I think I'd said, out the window, you can see the splendid view of the Alps. This is Canberra at its best. And mm. that was good for another half minute. But <laughs> um, He's looking at it and going, they're not I, mountains. I'm, I'm from Europe. <laughs> yeah, I thought towards the end, I said, well, I said, in, in sort of building areas of future cooperation, there's always mining. Mm. And there was a silence and he said, we don't have mines. So I'd... I'd, I'd I was dealing with the one country in the world that hasn't got a mine. Oh, they mine yes. nothing. There's simply no mines. Um, but that aside, when you have a meeting every half hour during Leaders Week in the General Assembly, New York, the United Nations, mm. speed dating, one foreign minister after the other, 
you get to the harder things. So you meet the, I remember meeting the Foreign Minister of Holland. What have we got to talk about? Well, it boiled down to this. He was a bit nervous about whether Australia might exclude from its, from its waters a Dutch-owned industrial-scale fishing vessel mm. scooping up all the fish. Everything. For miles around, scooping up everything, yeah. Um, that was a concern. He was just, he'd heard that we had some reservations and might be banning them. And the second one was the visit by a Dutch member of parliament to Australia. And as it happened, this guy whose visa might have been in doubt turned out to be the anti-Islamic, the unwholesome anti-Islamic campaigner Gert Builders. Yeah. It was interesting that the only issues of live wire contention in our relationship were those two. Interesting. So you find something in common, even though you might not like it in common. Or try to, or try to limit and define yeah, your differences. Exactly. Um, just break down the role of a foreign affairs minister and actually what you're doing. Is it 50% meeting with leaders from overseas or is it 50% back here in Australia working out ways to further Australia's causes on the world stage? How does it all break down? Well, a key difference is that an Australian foreign minister, unlike the US Secretary of State, sits in the parliament. So you've got parliamentary duties pinning you down. You've got to be in that parliament house building. Mm. Whereas the US Secretary of State, like the rest of the American executive, is independent of the legislature. So being in the in the parliament is a large part of it and dealing with parliamentary colleagues and being part of a cabinet process that uh, deals with far more than foreign affairs. But you've got to you've got to be ready to answer in the parliament for, well, for example, how we're handling human rights issues in Sri Lanka mm. because there's a Green senator who's got a focus on the allegation of human rights abuses in Sri Lanka. As foreign minister, I've got a commitment to run a good working relationship with the government of Sri Lanka um, because we've got some interests we want to deal with in common, like seeing that there's no refugee flow from their ports into Australian waters. Mm seeing that they don't add to the challenge of boat people during a period when that was a fraud issue. So I might be being drawn to a position being being pursued by a parliamentary colleague, but I've got to focus on what is not only the government's policy, but the well-worn Australian policy towards that country or that issue or that multilateral, that is concerning more than one country, agenda. So all that's all that's that foreign policy of Australia is being crafted around a definition of our national interests and our values, and I can't be dragged off course because a parliamentary colleague wants decisive action against country X or country Y that might sacrifice our capacity to deal with country X or country Y over a range of other issues. So so Japan and whaling, yeah, Japan and whaling. Marine mammals have got no stronger friend hmm. than yours truly. <laughs> but um, to what extent do we make our relationship with Japan so important on so many fronts, dependent on them changing a practice that clearly arises from Japanese culture? And the view Australian governments have taken is that we simply carve out of the Australia-Japan bilateral the issue of whaling. And we set that to one side. That's a difference we've got, a difference that we're not going to resolve. But in the meantime, while acknowledging that difference, we pursue a very big 
economic, trade, strategic agenda. Far out, Bob. I thought parenthood was a juggling act <laughs> as opposed to this. Mike, is it seen within elected officials, be it in the, the House of Representatives or the Senate, which mm. you were in, is it seen as a dream job or for some people they just look at it and go, that's too hard for me, no way in the world I want that? I, th- I think a bit of both. For you it was a dream job, obviously. Yeah, because I'd done in running a state cabinet and being a state opposition leader and before that a state minister – I suppose I'd earned my time, in a sense, mm. working at a pretty local agenda. What about some of the people you make? Do you get sick of the dinners and having to be cordial you get, you the get whole sick, time? You get sick of the travel. The, the business travel? can the, the dinners can be pretty businesslike. Okay. Your host, the foreign minister of Indonesia or of Japan uh, or of China, is just as keen as you to get back and lay his or her head down yeah. and, and uh, get a decent night's sleep. So the dinners can be pretty uh, pretty businesslike. I, I said to Martin Alagawa, the Indonesian foreign minister, once when we we're having a a very nice tete a tete with with our wives, I said, Marty, having just learnt that you're going to get a flight at five in the morning and hit three ASEAN capitals over the next two days, mm. why don't we terminate this before the dessert and coffee and let you get home with Saranya? And I think. Uh, I think that was civilised. So it can be a grind. It's like this is relentless. It's... Yeah, one layer of jet lag on top of the other yeah, it's not is really... a bit rough. You know, I'm yeah. just getting over the time at the UN in America. I got back to Australia and all of a sudden I've jerked out of our time zone by three hours in the opposite direction uh, to go to the Hainan Forum in southern China. But hang on, I'm just told by the department I've got to be in Mongolia because unless we go there and have a meeting with the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister and the President... We've got no chance of getting their vote in the ballot to serve two years on the Security Council. So your mind can be in six different places. Yeah. How much are you advised and by whom are you advised about matters that you've just brought up, about situations that are arising all the time? You personally can't be across the thoughts no, no. and implementations of 195 countries. No, no I, I took the advice of the head of my department very seriously, Dennis Richardson, and Peter Varghese, Dennis Richardson, very experienced in Canberra politics. He'd been head of head of ASIO and he'd been our ambassador in Washington. You don't get a more important job than that. And then he'd, uh, he was, after his time with me, heading foreign affairs, he was to go on to head defence. So someone like that is valuable. But you know, as I said about him, I said, or said to him, valuable because he tells you when you're wrong. That means, apart from anything else, apart from being corrected, you can also count on his sincerity when he says you did something right. <laughs> he really means it. Really means it. How much did you travel? You were 18 months in the job? Yeah. Oh, I, I couldn't count the uh, miles. Um, it fell when I had to see through our bid to get elected to the UN Security Council. Uh, so that meant a bit more travel the necessary uh, a side trip to Malta, for example, because we thought we'd get their vote, but we thought it did depend on turning up and asking for it. Better face-to-face. What's Putin like face-to-face? Well, it's funny. Um, I was with him at the G20 meeting where I was representing Australia in Petersburg, and I'm patron of the Russian Film Festival, so I told the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, that, and he liked it, and I said, I've seen a... I've seen a Russian TV series from the early 70s called The 17 Moments of Spring, 
Mm. And he said, oh, you have seen that. He said, that was the most popular TV program in the history of Russia. It's all about a Russian spy in the Third Reich who's infiltrated the Third Reich. Right up Putin's alley. <laughs> well, 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 Putin as a young man saw this, yeah. as did every other citizen of the Soviet Union, and as a result, captured by the glamour and the lead role, the, the Russian spy who'd infiltrated the Third Reich was in his Nazi uniform but getting on the, the radio and sending messages back to Moscow, was played by a very charismatic famous Russian actor. Hmm. Putin decided to join the KGB as a result of this TV program. So I bounced up to Putin, entering the Peterhof Palace for the G20, and I thought I'd really make a hit. I said to him, um, Your Excellency, Mr. Mr. President, um, I'm not just the Foreign Minister of Australia, but I'm a patron of the Russian Film Festival in Australia, and I, I love the famous Russian TV series, The 17 Moments of Spring, with which I believe you are so familiar. And he looked at me blankly and he said, what is this? What is this 17 moments of spring? I said, oh, it's the TV series that uh, I'm told you, you watched it as a young man and persuaded you to launch your career in intelligence gathering, putting a, a polite name on it. And he said, I know not this 17 moments of spring. And so our time has run out. All the cameras were clicking the next leader was ready to walk on. And I said, well, I'm looking forward to working with you over the next next two days. <laughs> Went well. <laughs> but he was very cunning. At The the debate at the G20 reflected a, a quite ill-advised bid by Barack Obama to get that body to condemn Syria for chemical weapons use. Mm. And the rest of the world wasn't prepared to move. The debate went on all evening and Putin wrapped it up. He was in the chair because he was hosting this G20. And at the end of the debate, it was after midnight, Putin said, well, we've heard all sides on this. He said, I just want to quote, I just want to conclude by quoting what a, a candidate for the US Senate said about wars in the Middle East. And he quoted, quoted the words and said nothing else. He adjourned the meeting. And that was Obama condemning the Iraq war when he was standing for the Senate seat hmm. of Illinois. And I thought it was the most deft, cunning, laconic intervention you could have imagined. And uh, I thought it said a lot about Putin. Hmm. It wasn't a long-winded, rambling attack on the United States. It was just so deftly done. With meetings like that, G20, all the big nations from around the world meeting in one place and all the very important people from those important nations meeting, it, how much posturing goes on, like body language? We see handshakes and you, we've all seen the Trump handshake and, and how that can look. How much of that goes on just for cameras as opposed to what actually goes on behind closed doors and how you interact as human beings? Well, I, think, I think the real truth, Adam, is that the conclusions of the meeting have been reached before you, the politicians, sit down. Oh, really? The negotiation between bureaucrats has produced the communique. And what you're attempting to do is to add a bit of value, perhaps to persuade someone around the edges, but not alter the outcome. I remember at that G20, the leaders of Argentina and Brazil, two women leaders, as, as it happened, gave impassioned speech, speeches defending their own country's economic records, which were pretty dismal, of course. 
and uh, Kirshner from Argentina said, uh, Argentina takes no lectures on economic management. We've always paid our debts. And I remember joking about this later with Prime Minister Lee of Singapore um, because both of us represented countries, Australia, Singapore, with very sound reputations in maintaining our AAA status. And it was something of a comic turn to hear a leader of Argentina say we always pay our debts when they'd had at least one very well-publicised default, not able to pay their debts. So there's a, there, there can be some, some good humour. Mm. And sitting next to SBY, the Indonesian president, I was able to lean across and give him a little tidbit of knowledge about a sensitive issue and he received it quite warmly. So every now and then the proximity enables you to add some value to your country's bilateral relationship. And the fall-down effect of that is that it gets back to Australia and hopefully improves Australia's standing and uh, well-being of our economy, for instance, inside Australia. And one, one thought here is you want to have a relationship that's relaxed and comfortable to the point where if there is an issue emerging, you can ring up your counterpart with whom you had a good chat when you sat down after the buffet lunch of uh, Commonwealth foreign ministers. No one else was talking to him, but you talked to him. Yeah, had some cheesecake together or something like yep. that. Yeah. And you now, without warning, need to ask him to do something to stop a flow of refugee boats, so-called refugee boats, yep. or economic migrants as it happened, to Australia's waters. If you'd had an adverse relationship with him, it might have been an option for him to allow the, the boats to head into your zone and watch you deal with the political embarrassment, the domestic political embarrassment that they represented. Just one last one on the diplomatic side of being Foreign Affairs Minister. Do you have to bite your tongue sometimes? If someone says something to you, it's like, mm, I really want to tell this guy or this woman what I think of them, but for the betterment of Australia and who I'm representing, I'll just refrain from that. Yeah, of course. And your department should have coached you in the, the form of words. So <laughs> one thing is to say, to avoid specifics, to say the meeting or our desire was to discuss matters of mutual interest. So why is your ambassador seeking permission to visit Tibet to inspect Australian aid projects and discuss matters of mutual interest? Um, invoking peace and security covers just about everything as well. Uh, um, we want to return to the peace and security agenda. Your department can be very good at suggesting, suggesting this, and it, it highlights a great truth in life. Everything is in the words. Yeah. Everything is in the words. You're dealing with, uh, in business or in management, with a, a few challenges in a report. Someone who's got, dare I say it, a, a journalist gift, knows how the, the choice of the right verb can bridge the difference and obscure the potential embarrassment. So from the diplomatic side to when foreign affairs needs to get involved to help Australians who might have got into a bit of trouble overseas. One such example I'd like to bring up, and I'm just wondering how this works on a diplomatic sense, bringing back to matters of, you know, I might need to ring this person up to help us down the line, or I don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. But there's one example I found was the Arc de Triomphe, wonderful status in all of France and recognised the world over. A couple of Australians decided to light a barbecue on the eternal flame underneath said arc. 
and they put the fire out, which on the face of it isn't a very smart thing to do given how much it means to the French people. So obviously the French authorities come in and say, get out, get out of the country. How does something like that kind of resonate with your role as a foreign affairs minister when the ministry hears about an Australian getting into trouble? I'd make no intervention on their behalf in a case like that. Yeah, It's the perfect illustration of the principle that when Australians are abroad, the law of the country they're in applies. And if they're silly enough to take that sort of risk, like the, the Australians who a few years ago were bearing their backsides at a some festival in Malaysia, or some public event, some outdoor event in Malaysia. Oh, the guys with the, the sluggos, yeah, the, yeah, the, the swimmers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, then I think I think I think the foreign minister does nothing. Yeah. Does nothing. If you're caught out visiting that country, you say our visitors to your shores should respect not only local law, but custom as well, and they really should apologise and learn from their mistake. But there are, there are more complex cases, like mm. people in prison in Bali for drug offences. One must carefully acknowledge that Indonesian law does apply, but if there is room while accepting Indonesian law to say um, there's a case for parole being given or for an early release or from, from other, some other consideration consistent with Indonesian law, you can raise that, but most effectively raise it in a bilateral meeting behind doors with the foreign minister of Indonesia. That's a tricky, tricky one, isn't it? That's a good example, and I'll delve into that one briefly, is that you've got this burgeoning relationship that you want to prosper because Indonesia right on our doorstep. They're right there. There's a lot of mutual benefits for both economies if we have close ties and we can move forward together. But then you've got someone or a group of people doing things that they maybe shouldn't have, but we might judge it as extremely harsh, the judgment being handed down in a court of law over there. And we'd like them maybe to come back here and serve their sentence, for an example. How delicate is that conversation? Because you want to help those Australians abroad who are in, obviously, all sorts of bother. Yeah, well, my, my first meeting with a counterpart when I was foreign minister was with my Indonesian counterpart. And on the list of matters to be discussed in our tete-a-tete was the, uh, the Australian prisoners in Bali. So I would, when if I were there today, I'd begin it by saying, um, Mr Foreign Minister, you'd understand that the condition of the Australians in jail in Bali for drug offences is a matter of continuing concern for us. Let me say from the outset, I acknowledge that Indonesian law applies, but we do think in this case, and then you go on to mount a case for something approaching clemency, mm. but you wouldn't do it in public. If I asked about it in public, I'd say, no, that's something I'll raise at a closed door meeting with my Indonesian counterpart. Um, I just warn Australians again that when they're overseas, uh, the law of the country they're in applies, not Australian law. So it doesn't work in but Like if you raised it in public, that goes down like a lead balloon. No, it would be regarded as very undiplomatic. Hmm. And with human rights issues in China, again, you're giving the Chinese or Vietnam, you're giving the Chinese or the Vietnamese a way of allowing a dissident to go on his way if you're not making it 
a question of loss of face. Even then, let me quickly add, you've got no guarantee of being successful. Yeah. But you're trying to be successful and your chances of being successful are probably greater, probably greater, no guarantees, if you're doing it in private, giving the other side the opportunity of giving you a win, doing the humane thing, without it looking like a, a colossal loss of face for them. Because back here, you're probably copying it as well, maybe from family and friends. How do you how do you appease family and friends of people that you're trying to help overseas, but you can't do it publicly because you don't want to upset the people who are you're dealing with diplomatically? How do you then keep everyone good back here? Well, you go to a lot of trouble, I did, um, to talk to the families and to spell out what you're doing. I remember an Australian man held hostage in the Philippines. He took an enormous risk by being in a, a plainly unsafe part of the country. I think it was his sister who was concerned about him and I remember a conversation. I remember a conversation with friends, family, supporters of um, the Australians in jail in Indonesia for drugs offences and with equally delicate cases around the place. But frankly, if someone from those countries had committed a comparable offence on Australian soil, the commentators on Australian radio would be pretty harsh hmm. on an Australian government that allowed the, the offending Indonesian or Bulgarian to walk free. Yeah, go back to their country and and get on with life. I mean, there's a case over, as we sit here right now, the, the case of the Iranian mm. prisoners yeah. over in Iran who have been arrested and there's one of them that's been there for a couple of years. And I mean, how do you deal with that diplomatically? So you've got ties to a place like Indonesia, you've got a common bond, but it seems diplomatically a place like Australia and Iran, pretty separate given that we're a big ally yeah, but I, in the I, US. I, yeah, I'd never give up on them though. Uh, the, the relationship has taken a turn for the worse because we've sided so quickly and so emphatically with the US, mm. as it seems, up against Iran. Um, but we've got an embassy there, which the US hasn't, and Canada hasn't, not sure about the UK. And obviously it's important to the Iranians to have lines of communication with as many countries in the Western world as possible. So they should be valuing the relationship. And as foreign minister, I would be pretty um, unrestrained about raising with my Iranian counterpart a persistent problem like this. Wouldn't that, though, tick off the Americans who you're so close no, to? No, the, Amer the Americans would concede that that was something about your bilateral relationship, and the Americans would probably be, the Americans would probably be quietly pleased that one of their allies has got a working relationship with Iran because we're able to offer them insights mm. into the political currents at working in the country that can match or add to other sources of American intelligence. So you know, the Americans would allow us that latitude. They'd say, you know, we'd do, we'd do the same when it, came, when it came to an American. We'd be trying to cut a deal consistent with adhering to our national security policies to get the American out of a prison. What, what the Americans would be doing would be using intermediaries like the government of Oman or Qatar, both of them with good working relationships with Tehran, 
like consultants, basically. Yeah, yeah, to put a case as go as go betweens, as go betweens. So essentially, when it comes to Australian nationals overseas and where it fits in with foreign affairs, if they get into trouble, so if it's for no fault of their own or seen to be pretty harsh, you'll help. But if they're just being dickheads, I know you won't use that term, but I will. If they're just being dickheads, they're on their own. Yeah, their problem. They, they, they can be kicked out of France or <laughs> or Malaysia, and uh, they'll learn their lesson. And I'm sure we'll go back there sometime in the future. Do you have to say back to the French one, the mm. Arc de Triomphe, and the extinguishing of the flame? Do you have to apologise to say, "Look, sorry, Foreign Minister of France, we didn't"? I know that means a lot to you, but. Uh, that wasn't our bad. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd welcome the opportunity of, of saying something to the effect that we, not just to the people of France, but to the people of the freedom-loving world, the people of the democracies, this memorial means so much. The whole world celebrated the liberation of Paris in uh, 1944 and we're just appalled and embarrassed that Australian citizens have engaged in this, in this juvenile behaviour and uh, they they must, in our view, apologise to the people and the nation of France. And they're grounded for 12 months. Um, last one. Does the cyclical nature of Australian politics, and there's been so much turnover, especially in the last decade, make it hard to make consistent inroads on the world stage? For instance, you were in the job for 18 months, then someone else was. I see that ministries change all the time. Every time there's a an election, there's a new ministry sworn in. Is it hard to have a clear view of consistency in this role on the world stage and does that hinder us? On one level it is. I was working very hard at deepening our relations with the 10 nations of Southeast Asia. And and even in the short period I had, thought I developed a good rapport with foreign ministers of Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, Myanmar and the others, Vietnam, and I would have I would have enjoyed five years in which to have pursued that uh, with a strategic vision. Um, so being being terminated by the the decision, no doubt right of the Australian people to vote out the Rudd government. Uh, the people are always right. We've got to say that <laughs> in uh, in September two thousand and thirteen meant that that couldn't be that couldn't be realised. Yeah, it does. Frankly, it does hurt us that. Changes of government, changes of prime minister have come so fast and furious, and it may not it may not be over. Who knows? Who knows? It's a fascinating world we live in, and the world of foreign affairs is fascinating within that. Bob Carr on Peacock Politics, thank you very much for explaining some of it to us. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matilov. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.